This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Michael Wirt, Associate Professor of East Asian History in the Department of History at Marquette University. Dr. Word is the author of Meiji Restoration Losers, Meiji and Tokugawa Supporters in Modern Japan, published by Harvard University Asia Center in 2013. Michael, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you very much for having me. So in your research, you've looked at the Meiji Restoration and some of the violence of the Restoration, and particularly at the losers of the Restoration. Can you talk about what is happening in 1868 in this moment of the Restoration in particular? Okay, my gosh, where to begin? So one of the questions that one could ask any modern historian of Japan is a very simple one, and that is how many people died during the Meiji Restoration and the Boshin War? And not to put you on the spot, but what would you think that number is? Do you have a number in your head or something that you read in a textbook or something? (laughs) I think it was about two, three thousand range. Okay, well, so if you're talking about the the fighting in the Aizu domain, right, the the fighting that goes on there, yeah, you get about two or three thousand. The number, which is almost impossible to find in in any modern textbook uh, in English, and even difficult to find in history textbooks in Japanese is the numbers between 10 to 15,000 total, depending on what you include. Mm-hmm. Right? So the interesting part of the Meiji Restoration is right there, which is we don't even think to ask if the Meiji Restoration is a violent moment. You know, it's this kind of thing where, okay, yeah, maybe some people died, whatever, and let's get on to the Meiji period. You know, the Tokugawa shogunate collapses, and that's all done. But the question in here is, why is it that we kind of gloss over the Meiji Restoration and the Boshin War as a violent event? Like, what is the purchase of that, of doing it, doing history that way? Right, so that's kind of the interesting question, which is, in some ways, more of a historiographical question. You know, why don't historians think of the Meiji Restoration that way? I mean... How many times have you heard or read someone say, you know, the Meiji Restoration is relatively nonviolent, you know, compared to the American Civil War or something like that? Which always struck me as an odd argument. Okay, yeah, the American Civil War is 600,000 dead. Relative to World War II, that's also not a big deal. I mean, like, what kind of argument is that, really? And the other phrase that we all often associate with the Meiji Restoration is Muketsu Kaijo, right? The bloodless handing over of Edo Castle. Right? Okay, yeah, sure. On that exact day, yes, no one gets killed when surrendering the castle. But really what that phrase is supposed to evoke is this image that the Meiji Restoration as a whole was a generally peaceful affair, right? And so why do we think of it that way? Why is it taught that way? Why is it depicted that way in textbooks? And why do we not care, of, you know, about the restoration as a violent event? Why is that? I think that's a place one could start uh, asking about the major restoration. So you mentioned it has something to do with the historiography. What is exactly happening in the historiography that encourages scholars to view the restoration as a smooth transition? Is it the narrative of modernization? 
Well, yes, I'm, I'm going to be a bit antagonistic here, uh, and, and people can disagree with me violently, which I'm more than welcome to suffer, and that is that essentially we're not even aware of what we're aware of. We're not even aware of the fact that we are succumbing to a view of the Meiji Restoration as, you know, it was this peaceful thing, and even the losers benefited after the, after the Restoration, which is, you know, obviously somewhat true, and that we're just getting on with the building of the modern nation-state and becoming a world power and this kind of thing. I think, you know, Conrad Tottman long ago called this the Meiji bias, right? That even the the view of the losers is somehow everybody's working for the Meiji emperor and peace on you, peace on me, and let's move on, right? And and this kind of thing needs to be confronted, I think, more in scholarship. And so focusing on the losers of the Restoration is a good way to tackle this? Well, I mean, it's it's simply one way one can do it, right? What happens to the losers? Who are the losers? How many losers are there? Do they suffer? Is there any suffering at all? Yes, kind of puts a pea in the bedding, you know, on this whole view of the Meiji Restoration and the smooth transition. So who are some of these losers and, and what different perspectives do we get of the Restoration by looking at what happens to them? Okay, so in a very basic, mundane, almost stupid sense... The losers are people who supported the Tokugawa shogunate, either they worked in the shogunate, or they fought on the side of the Northeastern Alliance, like the former Aizu men or something like that. Um, and even people who die before the Meiji Restoration itself, like Inousuke, but who are nonetheless tied into that whole narrative of the collapse of the shogunate, even they would be losers in a sense. And so... When you look at losers, especially in terms of memory, they have to go through a more arduous rehabilitation than the so-called winners of the Meiji Restoration. For, for example, Saigo Takamori, he would be considered a winner, right? And he's a winner, he's loyal to the Meiji Emperor, and he's a general and all this kind of thing, right? But if you take someone like Inousuke, well, now you have to, you know, not only figure out a way to depict him as a good guy working for the nation, um, but you have to fill in the blanks, um, you have to erase all the bad things, or, you know, somehow explain away the bad things. There's more memorial work involved, right? And in looking at that, you get a full range of what are the things that a, a people value at a certain historical moment, whether it's in the early Meiji period, or Taisho, or post-war, or, or whatever. You know, someone, the, the focus of the book in terms of narrative, is on Oguri Tadamasa, right? So he, in a sense, has to go through even more uh, memorial work because there has to be, all right, well, who the hell is Oguri Tadamasa and why should we care? And he was executed. Why was he executed? He must have been a bad guy. Well, he wasn't a bad guy, right? So you, you, you first of all, have to actually, uh, if you're a memory activist, if you're a local villager or a prefectural governor, in, say, 1901, you actually have to teach people who the guy is, explain away why he's a villain, and then explain why he's a hero. So there's a lot more involved there than, than say, a famous winner like uh, Saigo Takamori. Speaking of, of memory and the kind of rehabilitation of some of these losers, my students are always surprised to hear that somebody as central to the Tokugawa polity and maybe the biggest loser of all 
Tokugawa Yoshinobu oh, yeah. is still kind yeah. of treated as an aristocrat much later into the Meiji period. What do we make of that? All right, so he's just this guy who retires as an elite. You know, he does a little bit of kudo archery on his free time and basically leads a secluded life away from the public eye. Um, so what do we make of of his, you know, post-Meiji Restoration life is that essentially he's kind of a non-committal guy. He's never really committed to the shogunate per se, right? He's not really seen as a villain anymore. He's he's even worse than vilified, and that is he is forgotten. He's simply a non-entity. And when in the Meiji period, when they're looking at the past and trying to valorize the past in order to create a Japanese identity as being you know, a, not simply a unique country, but uniquely unique. You know, they're looking at the distant past, and you know, they could care less about Yoshinobu in some sense. He even lacks any martial value. I mean, you know, the Aizu Fallen, as Hiraku Shimoda's book showed, you know, they are kind of rehabilitated as the um, purviewers of martial value, right? You know, ultimately they fought for what they thought was the cause of the emperor, and, you know, they died, you know, out of their loyalty to their lord and the emperor, and they're gone. Um, but that's where the real samurai spirit existed, and we should celebrate that in Meiji Japan, right? Like, that's one narrative. But for Yoshinobu, he doesn't even, you know, he doesn't even have that. In some sense, he's the counterpoint to the Meiji Emperor in that, you know, they have symbolic value and symbolic power. Um, and because that symbol is gone on the Tokugawa side, he has nothing left, Yoshinobu, right? Like, he doesn't even have any anything to do, really. Yeah. He's kind of, he's just an empty symbol, you know. Uh, the Meiji Emperor is, at least, he's simply a symbol, but a symbol that has some salience in the lives of people and the oligarchs and this kind of thing. You mentioned the, the vilification of Tokugawa officials like Inaosuke. On the other hand, there's this kind of lionization of Tokugawa officials who seem to turn coat or maybe change sides to the imperial side, like Katsu Kaishu, uh, oh, yeah. as somebody who who's kind of lifted up as one of these these enlightened Tokugawa officials. Well, you know, even he he really he really gets the brunt of the anger of former Tokugawa men, right? So he's kind of seen as the guy who, you know, he's he's key to this bloodless handing over of Edo Castle. They offer him a gig. He says no. Um, but he's just a guy who's in, in some ways like a pundit and a writer. Um, and, you know, some of the former Tokugawa men see him as a traitor, and he he is vilified a little bit. Um, if, if you look into the into the writings by people who were writing journals about the Edo period and the shogunate, uh, there's a there's a journal from the early Meiji period called Kyubakfu, right, the former shogunate, which is mostly these ex-shogunate guys who are writing, um, and, and they kind of vilify him. I think even Fukuzawa Yukichi was not a big fan of Katsukaishu, if I remember correctly, because he's also someone who celebrates the losers, right? Ah, the Mikawa samurai, they had the real martial spirit that we need to learn today, yada, 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 right? Which is a side of Fukuzawa Yukichi we usually don't think of, right? We think of him as, oh, the samurai, they were arrogant, blah, blah, blah. But in fact, 
he celebrated those samurai, and my favorite anecdote about him is he used to uh, delight in showing his skills at Iaido when visitors came to his house, right? Which is kind of how I transitioned into book number two, right? So on one hand, we can say, yes, if, if you look at um, thought and religion, you know, if you look at ideology simply as stuff that is written down, then you look at Fukuzawa Yokichi and you say, okay, yes, he's against all, you know, the feudal past. But if you look at what people are doing, they are in fact, through their actions, embodying another type of ideology, and that is the fantasy of the, the martial warrior, right? Which is, really becomes a problem in the Meiji period. Another product of this Meiji as smooth transition narrative is that it creates the sense that everybody was on the same page and there was really never much resistance to the Meiji state. But when you look at, say, writers like Fukuchi Genichiro or, as you mentioned, Fukuzawa Yukichi uh, and some of these, the Kyubaku officials, uh, the ex Bakufu officials, do we see antipathy towards the new Meiji regime from these Meiji restoration losers? Um. There are some antagonistic feelings in the immediate aftermath, but those go away very quickly because uh, there could be various reasons for this. One is that they have a bigger enemy to face, and that is global capitalism. And in order to face that enemy, as represented by the West, they really need to be all on the same page, right? And so they're fully supporting, you know, a new government, a, a reformed government, and this sort of thing. Um, but occasionally you will see, even, for example, in Fukuchi Genichiro's writings, this lamentation that, you know, some people were wronged, and, you know, we need to not forget that. Um, but they're bigger fish to fry, you know. Which is why, really, you know, this idea that the Meiji Restoration is a smooth one and there's no violence, in some ways, begins... Well, you know, I don't know if we can say it begins with, but a, a perfect example of this early on is uh, Ito Hirobumi's speech in San Francisco in 1872, where he's saying, you know, uh, the, the feudal system fell with, uh, you know, without blood being shed at all. One can kind of say, you know, accuse him and say, oh, you know, you're an idiot. Of course there was. But, you know, I kind of sympathize, and that is, he's, you know, in the lion's den, so to speak. He's got to renegotiate treaties, he's speaking to businessmen and elites in San Francisco, and he has to show Japan to be, in some sense, uniquely unique, which is to say, unlike any other country in the world going through modernization, of course he wouldn't use that language, but we didn't even have violence associated with that transition. Uh, which is, of course, impossible. Modernization always brings with it violence. And he's also emphasizing the the rapid progress and material civilization that Japan is undergoing. And, and this is all meant to help revise the unequal treaties, of course. Yeah. We see Ito Hirobumi talking about how Japan is unique in world history because it's the only country that goes through modern transition without any violence. 
But then we can fast forward to a book written called the uh, Meiji Ishin o Kangairu, you know, thinking about the Meiji Restoration, where the scholar makes essentially the same argument that the Meiji Restoration is a unique revolution in world history because unlike other revolutions, there's essentially no violence and there's a status group that gets rid of its own status. So Japan and the Meiji Restoration as a revolution is not simply unique, but it's uniquely unique, which really feeds into a lot of Nihon Jinron and awkward politics. Uh, and this scholar was, you know, at a recent workshop, and there was kind of a bit of defending of that, and which, you know, I wanted to push up against uh, as the antagonist. And speaking of this class that kind of undoes its own status, I'm, you know, come keep coming back to the old Tom Smith article about Japan's aristocratic revolution, where he tries to get at that question of why is it the the samurai self-consciously deconstruct their own position in society? And this is something that the students always ask over and over, because it, it seems almost counterintuitive that they would do so. And so how do you explain this to your students? Okay. Well, what I explain to my students, although I think if I were to if I were to think about this more deeply, I think it's problematic for the reasons that Katsu Hirano pointed out in his uh, recent book, um, and because he he talks about that article. But the way that Smith sees it, and the way that I see it, is look, you know, being a samurai wasn't all that great. You know, getting rid of your status if you are a low-ranking, disaffected, underemployed guy is not really a big deal because you never really benefited from that in the first place. You didn't benefit materially, and you didn't benefit, you know, politically either. Um, so getting rid of their own status was, was not really a big deal for them. You know, it would be a, another issue if it were, you know, 30 daimyo right, from large domains that were wealthy that got rid of their status, that would be something, but that's not the situation. Now, I say, even as I say that to my students, the, the problem of that explanation is, you know, the Hegelian notion that people are looking out for their own self-interest and, you know, oh, I don't materially benefit from this, so therefore, you know, I won't do it. And that being a modern concept that the that the samurai aren't under operating, they're not operating under that you know realm of being, if you will. And so I can see how that's a problematic statement. But so what I say to students is, you know, this isn't the only reason, but there's no incentive for them to keep it around, right? You know, that nobody's really benefiting from it. Um, and this is something that, you know, even people in the shogunate, and I think Oguri Tadamasa is the perfect example of this, even those people were thinking, you know, something has to change. You know, the shogunate can no longer exist as the shogunate. Uh, maybe it'll be a constitutional monarchy like Prussia with a Tokugawa as the monarch or something like that. But it was clear that something had to change, right? So I think change was inevitable. Collapse not necessarily inevitable, but certainly change was inevitable. And even Tokugawa shogunate men knew this. 
You know, I, I've been thinking increasingly about this collapse narrative. When I presented to the students, it, it, it actually I kind of presented it as very anticlimactic in the sense that it happens very quickly. You have this long buildup for about 10 years or so from Perry's arrival, 53, kind of adds the kind of cataclysmic factor to everything going on in Japan. Then, then you get to this point where it's Tulsa suggests to Yoshinobu that he resigns and then he does. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the end, right? Well, I seem to I seem to remember reading somewhere that when he announces his resignation, like several of the shogunate's men go out into the garden and commit seppuku. Which is quite stunning when you think about that. I mean, you know, as I say to my students somewhat jokingly, can you imagine, you know, uh, the end of the Obama era, Trump becomes president and some of Obama's men run out to the White House lawn and kill themselves? Okay, maybe we can't imagine that. <laughs> but nonetheless, right, it would be shocking. <laughs> but, but then there's this kind of follow-up petition, follow-up letter that says, well, actually, no, we're actually going to take away all of your land. And I forget which scholar was saying this, but I was reading that perhaps we could even think of this as almost coup d'etat. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I'd buy into that, yeah. And, and that's what precipitates the Bolshin War, because now Yoshinobu is saying, hey, that wasn't part of the deal. I'm going to march on Kyoto now. Right. And then, you know, he it doesn't work out. And he's like, all right, OK, I'm done. You know, <laughs> and then it's these other guys who are like, screw those southwestern domains, you know. martial ideology and the commemoration of kind of a maybe a warrior spirit this brings to mind Saigo Takamori again yes. would he be considered a loser of the restoration well I mean sure one well in the kind of mundane stupid way that I meet it in the book no he would not because he's on the winning side but certainly he could be considered a loser of that kind of Meiji restoration period at large if you include this kind of amorphous uh, creation of the of the of the Meiji nation state and he's on the losing side because he was you know uh, he was he was too martial but what I would say is and this gets to my second project and that is one of the problem one of the reasons why I think you know the shogunate falls apart is that people over-identify with this kind of warrior fantasy image. And when it comes to ideology, it's not things that resist ideology that cause the real problems. It's exactly the opposite. People who over-identify with the ideology and take it all too seriously that threaten the system. And I think Saigo Takamori and men of high spirit are exactly those types of people, right? They're kind of buying into a warrior fantasy that they get through, uh, you know, their education, through literature, through the depiction of martial values in theater, their own practice of swordsmanship especially, um, and they kind of over-identify with it. And so they're young, disaffected, single men who have no outlet for their 
for lack of a better term, political aspirations. And so they over-identify with those values and go off, you know, killing Bakufu officials, killing the occasional Westerner or their, you know, Chinese servant and engage in this fighting. Um, and this might be another reason why some of the ex-shogunate men also, you know, don't feel a whole lot of anticipation you know, a whole lot of negative feelings towards the the Meiji government is because they're also part of that same fantasy and ideology, right? You know, they're they're all living the dream in their fighting against each other in some way, right? If you wanted to be cynical about it. And that's kind of what I'm looking at in, in book number two. Speaking of conflict within the Meiji Restoration and conflict within the early Meiji state, I mean, there, of course, there's no bigger conflict than the Seikonron debates of 1872-1873 and this kind of schism in the early Meiji state that leads to half of the people, the war party, so to speak, leaving the government. Some go on to carry out the Samurai Rebellion. Some go on to form the People's Rights Movement. Is there any alignment between the ex-Bakufu officials and the People's Rights Movement or any alignment against or any alignment in these groups that we could think of as antagonistic towards the oligarchic rule of the Meiji state? So ex-Tokugawa men who are, are there ex-Tokugawa men who are against the Meiji state uh, as, as a group, as a block? Uh, no, I don't, I don't really see that. Um, do you? I mean, you probably, you're the Meiji guy, you probably know this better than I do. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, well, I was just thinking as, as you were talking, I was thinking, can we think of the Meiji Restoration not as a single a single year event of 1868, sure. but perhaps more as a 10-year event going from 1867 to the Satsuma Rebellion of 1877? Sure, we could do and that. Just kind of... <laughs> And just kind of have some waves. I mean, is is Saigo because you were mentioning you know, he he's kind of motivated by this martial ideology, and I mean after eighteen seventy seven, I, I think that's really the moment that there is no challenge politically to the hegemony of the Meiji state, right? Yeah, so, yes, absolutely. And so perhaps it's it's that ten year period where that we can think of as the longer Meiji Restoration. Yeah, you know, and I think I would agree totally. And it works in in absolutely absurd ways. For example, immediately after the Restoration, right, eighteen sixty nine, when they form this kind of deliberative assembly, right, and there, you know, there's a, a couple hundred of these guys. They're gathered around trying to figure out what they need to do, you know, in the government. And if you look at their records, there, of course, there's the one famous case where one guy says, all right, maybe we should abolish carrying swords in public, right? And he's outvoted. Uh, he, is, he has his rank stripped away from him and his life threatened, right? Um, the very famous incident from that. Period, but there's also this other thing, which is they spend more time debating whether seppuku should be allowed than they do on how to figure out the unequal treaties. So, in some sense, you know, again, they they can't traverse the martial fantasy. They're they're upset and spending time on the wrong topics. You know what I mean? It seems ridiculous in a sense. Like, uh, you know, spend more time debating seppuku than you know 
<laughs> how do we get out of these treaties and things like that? Of course, one could argue and there's a connection, seppuku is barbaric and uncivilized, yada, yada. But nonetheless, right, there are other things they could have been spending more time debating in those initial years. conflicts and the violence of the restoration. Are you inclined to see 1868 as a revolutionary moment, maybe a, a moment of rupture? A moment of rupture. Um, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, everyone else will, will emphasize continuity, and, uh, and I can see that, right? You're some uh, farmer in, I don't know, the West Coast, and, oh, yeah, I hear there's a, you know, a new government or whatever. There's been fighting in the Northeast. Yes, for that guy, it doesn't really matter yet. The impact of modernity hasn't hit that person yet. It will hit his children or his grandchildren. But can we see 1868 and 69 as a rupture of some sort? Yes, in some ways we can. It depends in what trajectory you're looking at. Since you've written about memory and historical memory, and especially regarding the Meiji Restoration, this being the 150th anniversary, the, the sesquicentennial of the Meiji Restoration, how has the memory of the Restoration changed? Is it a useful memory, especially 150 years on? Are there lessons we can learn from the Restoration? Do you have any thoughts on any of this? Yes, absolutely. What's interesting is that so when we think about the centennial in 1968, leading up to 1968, historians as early as 1961-1962 had been writing about how we should not have a one-sided celebratory attitude of the Meiji Restoration and the glorious Meiji state, right? Um, this was done mostly by so-called leftist scholars. Um, and so... Leading up to that, there was a lot of, you know, wait, we shouldn't just celebrate 68. Even among politicians who were celebrating the centennial as something great, even some of them noted that, okay, there were some bad things that happened during the Meiji Restoration and it wasn't all good. We don't see much of that resistance during the 100th, 150th anniversary, as I've been trying to follow online. There's no, uh, there's no counterpoint that I've seen, and in some sense, it's even scarier. You know, there's this effort uh, to change bunka no hi back to, you know, showa tenno no hi or something like that, right? So it's just one-sidedly celebratory. Um, and that's a bit scary, although it's not surprising given, you know, Abe politics and, and this sort of thing. But I think it was a, a professor at Kyoto University who was writing online, maybe it was a blog or maybe it was a post for Asahi Shimbun, who was, saying, who was essentially saying the same thing that you know, no, no scholars are actually making any commentary on the 150th. 
you know, people who are specialists. But in 1968, for obvious reasons, it was such a, you know, controversial topic because it is a celebration of the Meiji Restoration is a celebration of, you know, uh, centralization of the nation state and this sort of thing, uh, which was obviously under question in 19, in 1960s Japan, 1960s everywhere, right? Right, especially 1968 with student protests, not only in Japan, but around the world even. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess what we could say is there's maybe a different relationship between historical memory than the state today that, or what, what's changed between 1968 and 50 years later that we don't have the same kind of self-reflection? Yeah, uh, that's an excellent question. I would say the self-reflection that is happening, if it's happening at all, is happening in certain regions where the violence of the Meiji Restoration was salient. Right. And in some sense, we can see this over the past couple of years in the NHK Taiga dramas, right? These annual year long historical dramas that have in recent years tended to focus on the Meiji Restoration period, right? Uh, Yai no Sakura and Han Hanamoyo and this kind of thing. And this year we have Seigodon about Saigo Takamori. Um, and what's interesting is. The one that I followed the most was Yai no Sakura. It's the only Tiger drama I ever watched the whole way through. And you see through the lens of the Meiji Restoration and the Boshin War, a commentary about war and militarization in general. There's, it's very obvious that they're critiquing war and they're critiquing Abe's effort to remilitarize Japan to a certain extent. And the reason I think this is so is not only because, you know, that's how I analyze it, but even, you know, the uh, right-wing nationalist comic book manga guy, uh, Kobayashi. Mm -hmm. Kobayashi Yoshinori. He put on his blog this very thing. He said, you know, Yai no Sakura starts off wonderfully. And in the beginning of the Taiga drama, it does celebrate martial values. You know, look, Yai Sakura, she can shoot a gun and this kind of thing. It's in, in many ways in the beginning comes off as rifle porn. Um, but then about halfway through, it really goes into this harsh critique of, um, you know, uh, the nation's friend that the, the newspaper from the Meiji period, uh, Kokomi no Tomo, right? Um, as being a mouthpiece for, you know, uh, Meiji state oppression. And I mean, it's really out there in your face. And in his blog, he says this very thing, which is, Yae no Sakura starts off wonderfully, and then it just turns into the dark leftist vision of history. Um, and so in some ways, we see regional or marginal views of the Meiji Restoration being used as a critique in contemporary politics. So that's one venue where we see uh, some kind of sailing to the major restoration still to this day. Um, but in terms of, you know, national level celebrations of the restoration, uh, as far as I can see, it's just one-sidedly celebratory. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.